Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, and sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. Political unrest, religious dissension, women's rights, and mental health. Stories from today's news? No. All of this happens in the historical novel Thy Children's Children by historian and first-time novelist Diana McCain. I'm state historian Walt Woodward, and in this episode, the story of a real family in the thick of Connecticut and American history for more than a century, told in a historical novel that evocatively portrays the past and is also a great read. Hear how author Diana McCain wove decades of research into a compelling novel and listen to learn how to enter to win a free copy of the book. This is Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, for Grading the Nutmeg. Today I'm here with historian and novelist Diana McCain to discuss her latest book, the novel Thy Children's Children, a novel based on five generations of a New England grassroots dynasty, the Lymans of Middlefield, Connecticut. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Mary. Diana, I've known you for a long time, and you are a marvelous historian and the author of six books on Connecticut history, including Connecticut Coast, and It Happened in Connecticut, as well as the award-winning to all on equal terms, The Life and Legacy of Prudence Crandall. But could you tell me how your historical novel starts? The novel begins in July 1738 in Middletown, which is in the colony of Connecticut. And the first chapter begins... I forbid it. The widow Hope Holly addressed the young couple in a tone as hard as granite. Then she focused her fierce glare on the 19-year-old daughter who shared her name. And you are a wicked, ungrateful child to defy me so. The younger Hope Holly stared back, upset but undaunted, for mother and daughter possessed the same iron will. The older woman had drawn on the indomitable spirit they shared to sustain her when her husband Jehiel drowned in the Great River at Middletown in 1727, leaving her just 32, a widow with three children. It had given her the strength to resist pressure to remarry, as most widows did at the earliest respectable opportunity. A new husband would be undisputed master of the Hawley family, would take ownership of the widow Hawley's house and farm, to sell, lease, or give away without so much as telling her. How did you decide to go from nonfiction to authoring this really substantial historical novel. I've always been a huge fan of historical fiction. I I call it a, a portal to the past because you can read a historical novel and then it inspires you to want to know more about what really happened. So I've always wanted to write one like that. The idea that you could take this take this story and fill in the gaps and bring it to life, and people would enjoy reading it, 
and then would also be inspired to find out even more about the facts behind the fiction. Now, we've had an episode of Grading the Nutmeg about the Lyman family and their farming endeavors today, but what made their story such a good candidate for a historical novel? You start with the fact that the family has been farming the same land for 277 years. That That's a record that's simply amazing, of continuity, of commitment. Uh, there's something like the 12th oldest family farm in the nation. So you have that just longevity, which in and of itself is remarkable all by itself. But then you have generations, they're involved in many of the major events in uh, Connecticut history, American history. They fought in the American Revolution. They were involved in the temperance movement. They were involved in the Underground Railroad and the abolition movement. They participated in the early Industrial Revolution. They helped bring the railroad to, to central Connecticut. So they're involved in all of these activities and events that, that shape America and shape Connecticut. But at the same time, they're an ordinary family, okay? They're, they have their ups and downs. They're not rich necessarily. Uh, they always farm. And their story is the story of everybody who lived in just about in New England during this time period from the 1740s to the 1870s. Uh, they had to go with, you know, the life was so much more difficult then. Medicine was, was primitive. Uh, you typically lost half of your children before they reached adulthood. Uh, just how difficult it was to make a living. Transportation, communication were also very primitive. And it really was an opportunity to convey that world that's so much different from ours today. Uh, and that, in that way, they were typical. So they were both extraordinary in one sense and typical in another. Now, where did you find all this information that you used on the family? There were some good collections. The Middlesex County Historical Society in Middletown has a, a great collection of Lyman family documents. Uh, the family had some materials, and I used those. But a lot of it came from the sources that you would use for any kind of basic history. For example, I used uh, probate inventories when people died back then, uh, they would make a list of everything in your house because things had everything had value back then. So I knew, for example, from the inventory of one generation that what from that what was what the how their house was furnished. I knew they had a tall clock. I knew they had this many tables, this many chairs. They listed their clothes. So I knew I used I, I knew what they were dressing in. So I had all of this information from from a probate inventory, which you can find for a lot of people back then. Uh, newspapers, there were, there were, you know, great accounts in newspapers of, uh, what they were, what kind of business they were in, that they were selling merino sheep, which was a big deal back in the early 1800s in Connecticut. There were more sheep than people in Connecticut at that point. So I was using all the resources that I would have used if it had been, uh, a historical, a straight history. You know, I think a lot of people, of a lot of our listeners, will feel that their family stories would make a good novel. There's certainly a number of colorful characters in the Donahue family. But how did you really take all that factual information and weave it into this fictionalized version? 
I call it that I, I assembled a skeleton of fact, okay? So I would research as much as I could find in various sources, and I assembled that. And then onto that, I applied the, the flesh of my imagination, shaped by what I had found. I, I said, for example, I couldn't send them all off to China. They didn't go to China, okay? I couldn't do that. But I could get clues and hints from things people said, things people said about them, and and use that to build the characters, you know, shaped by the historical information. Now, do you create a whole story map at the beginning, or did you just work through the decades? I just worked through the decades. Uh, it was, and that's one of the, the sort of advantages and disadvantages of writing a historical novel that you're really trying to reflect history as it was. There are lots of historical novels and they will pick famous people from history and throw a little bit of sort of accuracy in there and then just take off and make it up. I was trying to do something that would really, you could read this, you could know that parts of it are actually literally as they happen. And even if you didn't, even the parts that aren't necessarily uh, true that I made up, they still reflect the time period and the conditions and as much as I could figure out about the people. So this is really almost as, almost as close to a biography of some of these people that really existed as you could get. As I could. Uh, mm. I, I, that's what I would like it to be so that you can read it and think either, wow, that really happened or I want to find out if that really happened, or I'd like to know more about that. There were several stories uh, in the novel, themes that I really expected, like, let's say, military service in the American Revolution, for example, or the role of the Congregational Church. But there were several that I actually was surprised at. The story of Elisha Coe being hospitalized in 1831 at the Retreat for the Insane, now the Institute for Living in Hartford. The Institute was just founded in 1822 and was one of the first mental health centers in the country. Could you tell me a little bit about how you discovered that story? I happened to be going through the Middlefield graveyard, which I love graveyards. They are just absolutely wonderful sources for historical information. And I came upon Elisha Coe's gravestone, and it said right on it, died at the retreat. Okay. And then I later found his obituary in the newspaper, and it said, died at the retreat. And that just told me so much. Uh, in in the early 18, I mean, you know, down until uh, the, the modern time, actually, mental illness wasn't understood. It was considered an embarrassment, something to be ashamed of. Uh, and there was no way to treat people, okay? So that they were typically locked up there was just nothing to do. And then the Retreat for the Insane was established in 1822 as in Hartford as a way to treat mental illness as, as a disease, as an illness, with, with care, with, with compassion. So here I have Elisha Coe dies at the retreat. So I obviously know that he had some kind of mental illness. I didn't know what it was. Uh, to to that point, and that his family, and, and so I had that fact, but then when you think about what that tells you, first of all, 
He has a family who doesn't lock him up in the closet, who goes to, puts him in the retreat, which is the most modern, advanced way, place to, to treat someone with mental illness. And it wasn't cheap either, so it must have cost them a good bit of money, but they, they did this, they took this new opportunity, this new approach. And then when he dies, it's in his obituary, it's on his gravestone. So clearly, they're not embarrassed. They're not ashamed of the fact that A, he was mentally ill, or B, that they had taken this step of putting him in the retreat. So that just told me a, a whole lot about their attitude towards family, towards mental illness, towards trying new things. And even sort of more revealing was on his gravestone, it listed five of his children who had died before he did and listed all of their death dates and where they were buried, which led me to think probably losing that many children may have contributed to whatever mental problems he had. I think that's one of the things in the novel that you see so clearly is how little they could treat so many common ailments. So whether it's infection from military wounds or whether it's childbirth, it it was a serious time in terms of losing family members. Now, there are so many strong women characters in the novel. What was your reaction to what you discovered about the status of women through those different decades? Well, we, we know that really women had almost no legal rights or standing uh, until post-Civil War in Connecticut. So that did not come as a surprise. Uh, it was interesting to see how women could, they could have influence through their relationships with men, or sometimes if they found themselves on their own. Uh, one woman, whom I won't name, so I won't spoil it, uh, is widowed, and she does not remarry. She raises her family. It's very hard. And then when she's considering remarrying later in life, one of the, and this is a quote from a family source, one of the things that, that keeps her from remarrying initially is she says, how will David know to go to the mill if I go off? Which means, how will her son know to do his chores if she's not there? Her son was 32 years old at the time, okay? So this gives me insight into this woman who has not remarried, has not taken on a husband to take on all of this. She's managed her affairs. She's moved on by herself. And she is, has been in control, okay? So, it, you know, even though she didn't necessarily have all the legal possibilities, um, another indication for the Lymans was William Lyman sent his daughter Lizzie to the Hartford Female Seminary, which was started by Catherine Beecher, sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And in fact, the Lymans were related to the Beechers, okay? But just the idea that in the 1830s, they send a daughter to get this really superior intellectual education, it wasn't cheap, sent her to Hartford, uh, tells me a lot about what their feeling was about, about women and their role and the value of an education for them. I know, that was so interesting in the novel because 
there are plenty of other families that you read about that are intertwined in the novel where they're just happy if their daughters are married off by 18 and have families and have husbands that can support them. Another thing that struck me about women in the book too was that you had so little control over what happened if your spouse died. Sometimes they were given rights to continue to live in the house that they already lived in. Sometimes they lost all their furniture and possessions. There's one case where there's an auction. They, there's no money left to pay creditors and everything this woman has in her household goes to auction. What, what about some of those stories? That was sort of how you were, I wouldn't say at the mercy, but for example, the husband dies. He dies whether or not he has a, a will. Uh, I mean, his estate is probated and as a wife, you were entitled to what they called your widow's thirds, okay? So you got a third of his movable estate, a third of the the furniture, the household equipment, things like that. The real estate you might get to use, but it always went to the children after you died. So there was that. But then they, if you died uh, insolvent, if you didn't have enough in your estate to pay your debts, they sold everything off. You got to keep your widow's thirds, but after you died, that went too. So so they sold the house, but the widow had the right to live in part of the house until she died. And you can just imagine what an awkward situation that must have been back then. Abolition is another theme in the novel. And I think in Connecticut, a lot of people just think, oh, we were always on the right side of history. We were always abolitionists. Abolitionists were the people that were really committed to abolishing slavery, but they were the minority. Yet the Lymans went so far as to shelter African-Americans escaping on the Underground Railroad. How did you find that story? Well, that is something that it's a misconception, as we, we know, that the idea that the North prior to the Civil War, was this very liberal, very <clears throat> free-thinking, welcoming the fugitive slave. And it just wasn't that way. And I felt it was important to make that clear because unless you understand that, you don't realize the courage it took to speak in favor of abolition, let alone illegally help underground slaves on the Underground Railroad. So I thought that was really something important that had to be made clear. And I knew from documents, for example, there is a letter uh, that's, that says that William Lyman was assaulted by a mob in Durham for his abolitionist tendencies. Okay, this is, it, this is dangerous. It is literally physically dangerous to be an abolitionist in Connecticut in the 1830s. And the Underground Railroad part came... Uh, there are two, a couple documents that um, make that clear. But when the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850, which basically made it, it, it really, it ramped up everything uh, as far as punishment for helping a fugitive slave. You could go to jail, you could, huge fines. And sort of the, the kicker was that you were required, if somebody came into Connecticut, chasing his fugitive slave, you were required by law to help that person. So you had to become a slave catcher. And this was just, it's just such an outrageous thought. So this is in September of 1850. 
The next month, in New Haven, there was a meeting of 2,000 people, 2,000 men. And it was, the speakers were the former governor, the former senator, uh, the professor of uh, theology at Yale. And the whole point of this meeting was to say, yes, we're going to support the fugitive slave law. This is the law of the land. We are going to do it. And the speakers are saying things about, it's basically, love it or leave it. You don't like the fugitive slave law? Go find someplace else to live. The minister from Yale is talking about who are these people from the South and why are they, why am I responsible for helping them when they come up looking for freedom? You know, they're inconveniencing me. I was really, really shocked by that attitude that late in the game, shall we say. And a lot of it had to do with economics because People, New Haven, for example, had a carriage industry that was huge. It had 40 carriage manufacturers and the South was their market. So there were lots of reasons for people to be interested in placating the South. Um, and what, and the way, one of the, one of the best evidences of the Lyman's activity in the Underground Railroad is a week after this, this meeting, they published in two different Middletown newspapers, sort of what I call their manifesto about the fugitive slave law, which is, it's it's wrong. It's against our religion. It's uh, we we can't do this. He said, you know, people we cannot be slave catchers, and they finish it by saying, this law we will not obey. And to me, that was like putting a neon sign over your house that said, "Underground Railroad Stop." So they were clearly. They were ready to go public and say, no, this is wrong. We're not going to obey it. That scene in the novel where they're in, I think, I think in Durham or Middlefield, and they, there are men that are going to accost him uh, after he's made it clear that he's an abolitionist is pretty tense because, you know, they're, they're very serious about um, assaulting him. They're very serious about confronting him. That had that is a wonderful scene in the novel. It really makes it clear that this is an illegal activity. Well, again, all I had for that fact was this letter in in the uh, it was a letter written by William's wife after he died, in which she says he was assaulted by a mob in Durham, and he never hesitated to support this unpopular whatever. But so I didn't have the details, but I did know because abolitionists in Middletown around the same time were being assaulted. They were being having being stoned. They were being run through the streets. They So that gave me some idea of what I might put into the scene of William Lyman being accosted, because I know that there really was physical violence visited on abolitionists around this time and around this part of Connecticut. How long did it take you to work on this novel? Uh, on and off, probably more than 20 years. Um, and I always hesitate or hasten to say that uh, during that time period, I was also working full time, having kids, uh, things like that. It wasn't like I worked on this for 20 years, but um, I would do some research and then sort of, you know, get away from it and then go back. Um, but it was just fascinating what you would find. What was the hardest part 
for you to develop or is there is it was it a certain time period or is it a certain type of character the the whole the religious aspect okay which is so key to to the Lyman family because they were very much involved with the church very much involved with faith and how important it was for anyone in that time period when you are dealing with all of these horrific things. Diphtheria comes through and your children all die within a week. How do you deal with that without just going insane? Um, and that was something that was, it was key. It was clearly something that was a lifeline. Uh, and it also guided how they led their lives in general. So trying to make that clear without making it seem sort of saccharine, um, that how important this was, how they felt it, how it got them through. And it was attacked at times. There's, there's one character in the book who's, who's based on reality and he is based on his, his words or quotes, who is very much anti-congregationalist and he is, he is insulting. He is vulgar talking about Christianity to these people. Um, so it wasn't just easy necessarily to be, you know, stay committed to your Christian faith. But that was something that was really, I really, really had to work on to, to try to get into their heads. Something that sent me to one of my reference books uh, when I was reading the novel was, this is the year that we're celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Constitution of 1818. And that's the official Connecticut constitution that actually makes the congregational church not the official state church and i was fascinated in the novel to read about uh, lyman features reaction to that before and after Could you just tell us a little bit about that since it's the anniversary right. year <laughs> lyman beecher was actually um a first cousin once removed i believe of william lyman okay uh, and they had, they had connections and, and interactions and everything. And Lyman Beecher, when he is, when this is this discussion about the Constitution of 1818 and, and disestablishing the Congregational Church is going on, he is a minister in Litchfield. And he, it's the end of the world, okay? Connecticut will descend into just, you know, hedonism and, and, debauchery and it will be awful if the church is disestablished and they disestablish it and that doesn't happen <laughs> uh interestingly you know other other faiths have come along you know the methodists the baptists and they've said you know we we feel we should have equal opportunity so the demise of congregationalism did did not lead to the the downfall of connecticut morality <laughs> It was interesting to see that, you know, he was so pessimistic beforehand. And then afterwards, as you said, things went on as usual, even though you had Baptists, Quakers, and Methodists. Right. So that was interesting. And he, of course, is Harriet Beecher Stowe's father. Yes. Uh, she grew up in Litchfield. Now, what what do you feel like you, you personally gained from the experience of writing a novel? I think it gave me, I hope a sense of getting into the time period and and understanding what it was like as opposed to just reading straight history 
Also, I hope it's that I've shared this with people because I, I have always loved history. I think it's the coolest thing in the world. I've made it my career. I just love it. And I want other people to feel the same way. And so I'm hoping that when they read this, they will get the same feeling. They will be, oh, wow, this is, it, it isn't just names and dates and dull people and all of this and old houses. It's, it's people who really lived like I did and, and, and dealt with the same things we're dealing with. Uh, you know, how do I make a life? How do I find a spouse? All of these things. Um, what do I do when there's a, a huge political controversy splitting the nation? How do I act? Um, they were dealing with all the same things we are. Um, and I think when you understand that, that there are people just like we are, but just living in a different world, it really all becomes real. Well, I can thoroughly recommend the novel. I read it from cover to cover and thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to thank Diana for coming today and sharing your novel with us. Thy Children's Children is available on Amazon.com. And for more information about the book and scheduling a book talk, go to dianarossmccain.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Diana McCain for sharing her secrets to writing a novel grounded in history. Be sure to go to our Facebook page, Connecticut Explored, or our Instagram at ct-explored to enter the raffle to win a copy of the book or find her book on Amazon.com. For more information or to schedule a book talk, go to dianarossmccain.com. To hear more about the Lyman family's 275th anniversary in Connecticut, listen to Episode 9 of Grading the Nutmeg. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And for more great history stories, read or subscribe to the magazine at ConnecticutExplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at Bowman.legal. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.